We are spending these uh, three weeks together uh, looking at Mark chapter 10. This is the account of the transitional time between uh, Jesus' transfiguration uh, and his uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it's in uh, specifically chapter 10 and on this journey that Jesus begins to tell even more fully and clearly to his disciples what it means to be his follower, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and what all of that is going to require. And so this journey off the mountain where Peter wanted to stay, this journey towards uh, Jerusalem, which will take Jesus eventually to his death, is the background for these teachings by Jesus on the true nature of discipleship. Jesus starts talking about his kingdom, the kingdom of God, that runs contrary and opposed to so many of the perspectives and beliefs and priorities of this world. And so in a very real sense, it's the values of the kingdom of God that seek to turn the world that we live in and the world that we experience upside down. So last week and this week and next week in Mark 10, we're looking at different ways that, that God turns the world on its head and invites us then to follow him. So last week we looked at the kingdom where the children are blessed. Uh, next week we're going to look at where the blind can see. This week we're going to look at the kingdom of God where the least are the greatest. So let's give our attention to God's word. We're going to look at Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And, and he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one, one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, to them you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we ask now as we turn to your word that you would stir our hearts. Lord, you know how easy it is for us to want to go our own way and our own path and be on our own journey, trying to make our own future. And yet, just as you call James and John and all the disciples, you call us back to yourself to be renewed and transformed, to give our lives away for the sake of your kingdom. But God, that task uh, is impossible on our own. So we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Give us a vision, not only for our lives as individuals, but for us as a community here at Central, where we will learn and continue to serve one another and our city. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are many things that I expected uh, as I was getting settled in uh, to uh, this new position uh, and um, being a pastor here at Central. Many things I am grateful for, working for this great staff, getting to be uh, your pastor meeting so many wonderful people. But one of the things that I didn't expect, which has been a, a really a pleasant surprise, is my commute to and from 
uh, work each day. My family for now is settled on the west side. We're in a sublet and apartment on the west side, which means I traverse Central Park uh, each day in the morning and the evening, sometimes on a bike, but mostly uh, I walk. And I'm realizing I probably have one of the greatest commutes in the world. Uh, getting to walk across Central Park is, uh, is pretty amazing each day. Uh, one of the things I'm learning uh, and figuring out about myself is already I'm trying to optimize each step, find the shortest, most efficient way to get across Central Park, both in the morning and uh, in the evening. And so oftentimes, like if it's at the Sheep Meadow or some other part, uh, places, there's the, there's the path that I'm supposed to be on, but I can see a straighter path. And so I kind of begin to m make uh, my own way according to uh, exactly where I, I want to get out of the park on either the west side or the east side. Well, as it turns out, I'm not the only one that does that. I wonder if many of you do that in your own, uh, in your own commutes, uh, even if you're not in the park, but making your way around the city. There's, but there's actually a name for this, and it's called uh, desire lines, desire paths. If you're a landscape architect, if you think about public spaces in any way, you probably are well aware of this phenomenon and maybe even uh, know the term. But uh, you no doubt have seen them, especially in parks. They're the well-worn routes uh, chosen oftentimes by visitors that are opposed to the actual path that has been made and created uh, for those who are using the park. Okay, here's an article from the New Yorker in 2018, which is, uh, had a whole article about this. Uh, I want to read just a little bit to you. It says this, Desire Lines, also known as cow paths, pirate paths, social, social trails, uh, uh, donkey paths, or elephant trails, can be found all over the city and all over the world scarring pristine lawns and wor worming through forests undergrowth. They appear anywhere people want to walk, where nor no formal paths have been provided. Sometimes they even appear, appear despite the existence of formal paths, of what seems to be sheer mullishness, or perhaps cowishness. Some view them as evidence of pedestrians' inability or unwillingness to do what they're told. In the words of one academic journal, they record a collective disobedience. Others believe that they reveal the inherent flaws in a city's design, the places where paths ought to have been built rather than where they were built. For this reason, desire lines infuriate some landscape architects and enrapture others. They also fascinate scholars, inspire artists, and enchant poets. There is a 55,000 member strong Reddit thread dedicated to them in which new posts appear daily with impassioned titles like Desire Never Ends and Don't Tell Me Where to Go. People seem to relish discovering odd new desire lines, the more illogical the better, and theorizing about what desires they express. All right, the reason I'm talking about desire lines and reading that article from The New Yorker is because this account that I just read of James and John and their desire and request of Jesus is revealing their desire lines. It's revealing the paths that they want to take. Very literally and, very, and, and figuratively as well, Jesus is taking his disciples on a path. The second thing we hear Jesus say in Mark's gospel, uh, in chapter 1, right after he says the kingdom of God is hand, repent and believe, the second thing he says is, follow me. And they're following him. Listen to this passage right before the verses I read. This is uh, verses 32 to 34 in Mark 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. 
And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And here, James and John reveal their path of desire, and it's not the path that Jesus is taking them on. They don't quite understand what lies ahead for them. And what lies ahead for Jesus as they follow him? And so I think this text that we're looking at this morning is meant to confront us because we all have desire lines. We have paths that we want to take for ourselves that we hope will lead to our own visions of greatness and glory. There is a a part of all of us that says, don't tell me where to go. Don't tell me how to live. I know how to do this. I know the path to glory. I know the way to life, the way to life, and I'm going to take it. I'm going to take my own path. I'm going to get there on my own. And Mark, in recounting this uh, account of James and John in this question, is really asking us, are you going to stay on the path that you're on, or are you going to take the path of Jesus? Will you trust in Jesus' promise of glory? Because he does promise glory. Will you trust in his promise of glory that only comes from service, or are you going to trust in your own vision of glory? So this text for us is very much a confrontation. It's meant to reveal in all of us the desires we carry to make our name for ourselves and to find our glory. But this passage also stands as an invitation. It is an invitation to true glory. It's in this account of James and John vying for their false glory that we see just how Jesus intends to make us glorious. The glory that we actually long for. And it's not how we usually go about it. So we're going to look at two things in this passage. We're going to look at how Jesus confronts our desire for false glory, and then how Jesus invites us uh, to true glory. So first, how does Jesus confront our desire for false glory? Well, the first way he does it is by bearing our constant desire for our own glory. He bears our constant desire for our own glory. Here's what I mean by this. Um, He's receiving, he receives our constant assaults for our glory over his. This is what he's doing here with James and John. Look how patient he is with their request. It's a bit absurd, right? Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You know, the parent equivalent of this is uh, in my house when my kids go, Dad, we're asking a question, just say yes. And I'm like, no. The answer is no. Whatever you're about to ask me, I'm telling you, it's no. In fact, they know not to ask a question like that because of course I'm going to say no. But Jesus says, look at his response. What do you want me to do for you? It's an amazing response. That response itself is filled with grace and patience. The patience of a savior and a king who is willing to do whatever is needed for his people. And to grow them into faithful followers. What do you want me to do for you? What he will do for them, they can't even imagine at this point. Because they're blinded by their own desire. They're blinded by their own desire for glory. So they ask to sit at his right and his left in glory. That's the request. Now, it is a bit absurd, that question, but it's not the worst thing in the world. I mean, they're not asking for special powers. They're not asking for material wealth. What they want to do is they want to rule with Jesus. They want to rule and reign alongside of him. And Jesus will say later on, especially in Matthew's gospel, that in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones. So it's not a completely outlandish request. It's not outrageous. The problem lies in the fact 
that Jesus has been teaching a lot about his kingdom and what it looks like and how it will come about. And they are blind to all that he has been saying about suffering and about serving. And they're only focused on the victory. They're hoping in some way his suffering will mean their victory and not their defeat. And they hope it means that that they're going to be made great and be brought out of obscurity. In other words, James and John are looking for the crown without the cross. They're looking for the crown without the cross. See, this is an opportunity for James and John to be on the winning team at long last. And if Jesus is going to defeat the Roman Empire, if he's going to be king and usher in a new kingdom, then they want a piece of that glory. And what you see is that Jesus bears this constant assault by his disciples for a piece of that glory. Because Jesus is focused on the cross and not the crown. And they're focused on the crown and not the cross. And in order to really understand this passage, you have to see yourself in James and John. And you have to see how Jesus bears with our constant assault for our own glory. Because you and I desire glory because we are made in God's image. You are made for glory. The Bible teaches from the very beginning that God is the center of all things, that he is the source of all, of all beauty. He is the source of all reality. All goodness and beauty and everything is about him and it points to him. You see this in the creation account in Genesis. But also that God made human beings in the glory of his image. The crowning achievement of God's creation is humanity. It is Adam and Eve in the garden. Humanity made to bear the image and glory of God. And they were given the glorious task of caring for and ruling the creation on God's behalf. This was their calling. It was their vocation. And now all of humanity has been given this glorious calling to care for and rule over creation. But with all this glory that Adam and Eve were given, there is still this distinction between God, who is, truly, who is truly glorious, and his image bearers, his creatures. They were given all of the garden, but they could not eat of this one, this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because God was God and they were not. He was on his throne and Adam and Eve, and now all of us were given this vocation for ordering things for his glory. And the Bible tells us that very early on, Adam and Eve grew tired of this arrangement. They had different desires. They wanted to go on a different path. And even though they were made to dwell with God and bear his image and glory, they weren't satisfied with the glory that was bestowed upon them. So they grasped for a glory that was not theirs. They ate from the tree that was not theirs to eat. And from that moment, you see it all throughout this Bible, you see it all throughout human history. We have grasped and longed for a glory that has never belonged to us. And we put ourselves in the center of the world, in the center of all reality, the center of our own story, and tried to take for ourselves what belongs to God and what God has actually promised to freely give us. And therefore, we, like James and John, often find ourselves making paths of our own desire, paths that lead to our own glory, and avoiding this call to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Rather, at every turn, we're longing to dethrone God from his place and put ourselves in that position because we think we know a better way. We think there must be an easier way and a better way to glory. And Jesus, in his grace and mercy, he bears that constant assault. He is the one who is worthy of all glory. He is the one in whom all things exist and who holds all things together. All things have their hope and their meaning in him. And yet, he is the one that bears the constant assault of the world 
and a people who want nothing more than to rob him of his glory. So Jesus confronts the constant assault of our own glory, but also he resists it. He resists our constant desire for our own false glory. Notice, of course, that Jesus doesn't say, sure, James, John, whatever you ask. Yeah, it's yours. He doesn't say that. Since you asked for it, you got it. No, he actually resists their request. And he does so by keeping the reality of the cross in front of them. That is what he's doing here when he starts talking about the cup that he will drink and the baptism with which he is going to be baptized. Now they respond, yeah, 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 we're ready. We got this. We can handle it. But his reference to the cup and baptism are references to his suffering. This cup is imagery that the Old Testament prophets used when they spoke of one's destiny. There's the cup of blessing, and then there's the cup of wrath. And here it's referring to God's wrath, God's holy anger on those who have oppressed the weak and the arrogant who stand against God's salvation for the world. All of God's anger was depicted in this sour cup of wine that would be poured out on the oppressors. So now Jesus is telling them that that's the cup that he is going to drink. I'm going to drink the bitter wine. I'm going to drink the cup of God's wrath. That's what he's telling them. And Jesus tells them that they too will drink of the same cup. See, Jesus is inviting them into his suffering. But he did this the moment he called them to be his disciples. The moment he met them and he said, follow me, he began the resistance movement against their own plans and their own schemes and their own desires for their own glory because he's enlisting them to partake in his glory. And I think this is one of the realities that if you're a follower of Jesus, we have to come to terms with. That Jesus is going to resist your constant desire for your own glory. And he does it not because he hates you, not because he's against you, not because he doesn't want you to have have true glory. He resists you because he loves you. Jesus resists you because he loves you. And if you're going to follow Jesus, we have to come to terms with this. Because so often we come into Christianity hoping or expecting to find a God who's going to agree with our every thought, who might follow us on our path to our own glory, who will offer us no resistance. And in him we find validation for all that we think and all that we believe. And so this is why we struggle so much with the Bible, because so often it confronts us. This is why we struggle so often with community, because we find others who might think differently, who might see things a different way. And so it's a confrontation. It's a resistance. And all of us have been given limits in our lives that keep us from the glory that we seek, that keep us from achieving more and producing more and gaining some greater level of glory for ourselves. For some of you, it's physical limits. For others of you, it's financial limits. For some, it's family responsibilities. For some, it might uh, be a difficult marriage or a singleness you would rather not have. And so often we view these things as though it's something we have to try and overcome in order to get to uh, a, a greater level of greatness. But friends, it just might be that Jesus is gently and lovingly resisting you. So that in these limits, you see your need for the cross. And you begin to see the way to true glory. The way that Jesus offers us. And that is the path that is not our own. So Jesus resists our desire and our paths to false glory. But then he invites us into the ways of true glory. And the first way he invites us is by offering forgiveness. The culminating verse of this passage, I think, is verse 45, where Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. 
See, all of this talk of the cross, the Son of Man giving his life for a ransom, it's Jesus himself not only resisting our desire for our own glory, but taking the full weight of the, de- the destruction of our relentless, relentless pursuit that our glory brings. See, our pursuit of our own glory, our ambition, our pride, it brings destruction. It destroys us. It destroys our relationships. Do you notice what happens here? What's the reaction of the other disciples when they hear James and John asking to sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus? The other disciples, they're infuriated. They become indignant by this request. Why should it be them? Why not us? See, the pursuit of glory, the pursuit of false glory, it destroys us. Now there's division among the disciples. Now there's mistrust. Now the, 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 frac- the, the, fractions are, the factions are taking place within the disciples. Because to pursue glory through any other way than the cross, through any other way than serving others, means we necessarily must gain our glory at the cost of others. So the pursuit of glory, it always brings destru- destruction. And this is why the church ought to be a completely countercultural in our relationships. Imagine a com- community where the least actually are the greatest. Imagine a community that resists the normal paths to glory, which treat everything from our relationship with God to our relationships with others as some sort of zero-sum game, where if someone's winning, then that means I'm losing. Or if I'm winning, someone else has to lose. Imagine a a community where the least are the greatest. And Jesus, in going to the cross, is bearing the full weight of that destruction so that we can be made free to live as we were intended so that we are forgiven and freed, so that we are no longer slaves to our own desires for glory, but free to love and to serve, free to be the least, free to lose ourselves in the far more beautiful glory that Jesus brings. The Son of Man, he came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. This is the invitation to true glory, to find life in the one who is is worthy of all glory and yet comes to lay his glory aside in order that we might have the glory that we actually long for. So Jesus forgives us our desire for our own glory, but then he also models it. Lastly, he models the way to true glory. Remember this entire journey that the disciples find themselves on. It started with that simple command, follow me. And now they find themselves on this road, and they're scared. They are uh, uncertain about their future. They don't get it. They're obsessed with their own power and their own glory. Now they're fighting. And yet, here's Jesus. He's never wavering, constantly putting before them the path that they will go, the path that he will go, and the path that they will go. First the cross, then the glory. Whoever is great among you must be your servant. Whoever must be first among you must be a slave of all. See, this is exactly what Jesus does. This is exactly what he does for us. Jesus does not call us to take up the cross and follow him, without first going to the cross himself. And you and I will never be able to have the courage and the hope to be the least unless we first see and experience that this is what Jesus has done for us. He comes to serve, to give his life as a ransom for your sake, for your glory. So what do we do with this, practically speaking? I think this means first, that we have to, at all times and always, constantly be looking to Jesus. In our daily rhythms, and our habits, 
finding time to regularly pray, to read scripture, to locate ourselves in this upside-down kingdom where glory is found through the cross. This will never come naturally to you. Seeking to be the least will never come naturally to us. It only comes when we situate ourselves in the promise that Jesus is going to bring glory. So giving ourselves to the scriptures and to, and to prayer. But it also means living this out within our community. You can't be the least in isolation. The least only comes when it is situated in our community. And this is why our community groups are so important because when we are left to ourselves, we will strive for our own glory. And it will never satisfy us. But when we embrace Jesus, he becomes our glory. Friends, you were made for glory. You were made to have God as your glory. All of your beauty and goodness, it is to be found and located in him. We will never find glory on our own. So we're called to seek after Jesus both as individuals and as a community, but then we're also called to serve. And the community that is the church is the place where we are called to live this out, to become the least and find ways to serve to follow Jesus and give ourselves away for the sake of this beautiful kingdom that Jesus has ushered in. There are many ways that you can do that, but it starts right after the service. Come and stick around and learn and listen to the ways that you can, in large ways and in small ways, begin to take up this call, to find yourself as the least and to find the way of the cross, the way of service, as the way to true glory. Now, one of the great concerns that we have when all this talk about becoming the least and giving up ourselves for the greater story is this fear that somehow we are going to be lost. That because if we give up our own quest for glory, then our own story, our own selves are going to get get lost. And no one is going to see the ways in which we serve. No one is going to see the ways in which we are taking up this call. But as we gather at this table, the promise before us is that Jesus sees, he knows, Jesus sees the way that you are hustling home uh, after a long day of work to clean your apartment because you have a community group coming over. Jesus sees the ways that no one else sees, the ways you're serving your neighbors and waiting and, and, and keeping doors of conversation open so that perhaps at some point down the road you can tell them the hope that you have. Jesus sees the ways that you serve your neighbors when no one else sees. And this table is proof of that because Jesus offers us this bread and this cup to nourish us and sustain us and remind us that the true glory comes first through the, through the cross. Because it's here at this table that we celebrate this bread and this cup. It is a guarantee in our share in Jesus' death and in his resurrection. It starts with the cross. We're, we're eating and we're drinking broken bread and blood that is poured out. But yet it is a foretaste to the glory we long for, the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus sees, he knows, and he offers us this cup so that we would be strengthened to give our lives away and to serve for his glory and for the sake of his kingdom. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we confess to you that so oftentimes we seek our own paths, our own paths of desire, our own ways of glory. And yet you, in your grace and your mercy, in your love of us, you resist us. You are patient with us. And you call us to follow after you. And even as you call us to follow you, you are not calling us to do something you haven't already done for us on the cross. 
So God, I pray that you would transform us, sustain us, and nourish us as we gather at this table and seek to be the people that you have called us to be. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.